This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Christchurch Conversations for 2022 continues the climate action theme with a series of five events. This recording is from the second event, Can Christchurch Plant Its Way Out of Climate Change? And it features experts and passionate people and groups working in this area. It opens with a talk from Craig Pauling. Tui ai runga, tui ai raro, tui ai waho, tui ai roto, tui ai te hereka tangata, ka runga ta ao, ka runga te pō, tihei, mauri ora. A te mihi tua tahi, mihi ki nga atua kaharawa. A hōmai o kahahoa, hōmai o aroha ki a mātau i tēnei wā ina wā katohoki. Ko raki e tu iho nei, ko papatunuku e takato. Ko tānei ki uta, ko takaroa ki tai, tēnei nga mihi nga atua. A kahuri o takawakaro ki nga tini aitua, ko wehi atu ki te pō e nga mate, haire, haire, hariatura. Hariki Hawaiki nui, Hawaiki roa, Hawaiki paumawao e nga mate, moi mai, moi mai, hoki hoki mai. A apati hono tātou hono rātou, ki a rātou, a apati hono tātou hono, tātou ki a tātou te hongo ora, ko taimai nei i tēnei rā, Kei raro i te tūnui o tēnei whare o tātou tūranga, ai, tēnā koutou. Nau mā hara mai, i tēnei pō, kei rotu i te rohi o nga i tūa huriri, ki te taho o te awa o tākaro, e rere ana ki te tai o maha nui, e rotu i te waka waka o puari, ai, nau mā hara mai, nau mā hara mai, ki te whakarongo, ki nga kōrero, ai pāna tēnei kaupapa whakahirahira. Hei whakahaumanu, nga rākau, nga manu hoki, o pākihi whakatekateko o waitaha. Ai, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou. Kia ora koutou, kō wai au, kō Craig Pauling, taku ingoa. My name's Craig. Uh, it's really awesome to be up here uh, to open up tonight uh, on behalf of Te Putahi and also my uh, whanaunga, my relatives at Ngai Tua Huriri. Um, acknowledge Joseph, who was here last time, uh, my cousin, and uh, he, I know he was busy um, installing some po at Kudatafati to that near Castle Hill, so you might see that on Facebook later on. That was pretty amazing. Um, so yeah, great to be here and looking forward to our conversation tonight. So um, yeah, I've been given the privilege to open up tonight and uh, also start us off with some uh, thought-provoking stuff, hopefully. hopefully. Um, so a bit more about me. Um, I've born and raised here in Ōtautahi, lived here all my life. I'm, um, I'm Naitahu Ngāti Mutunga um, from my mother's side. I'm also English, Scottish and Welsh, if you can't tell by my looks. Um, but I didn't grow up um, knowing about my whakapapa until I was about 20. Um, and I found out about a lot of other things when I was 22, as you do, um, including um, about um, our Indigenous flora and fauna and uh, sort of what we'd done 
and what we've done to it. And uh, so that's sort of a bit about why I'm interested. And is the can we bring the first slide up, or do I have to do it, or can you do that, Kapoi? Um, and so really, what I wanted to start with, if it, when it comes up, yeah, there it is. Is um, just wanted to start off with a series of questions and beginning with something pretty simple, and that is um, why. Why are we here? Um, why do we do what we do? What is truly important? Well, for me, it's always one thing. Our world, our home, our place, and us. But I mean all of us. And when I say all of us, and you can see in the image, it's pretty beautiful, hey. <laughs> um, I mean not just us humans, um, but all of us. You know, the, the, the manu, the birds, the ika, the fish, uh, the, uh, all the insects, all, everything, all of us. Uh, because if we don't have them in our lives, what are we? That's what I think. Um, so that's what's truly important, is all of us and the place we live. Uh, and if you go out further, that's our whole world, right? Um, and so that begs the question, who are we? Uh, where do we come from? Who do we come from? What have we done? What have we lost? And what are we going to do? So that are some questions. You can think about them for a bit. So um, I just wanted to talk about this for a second. This is a um, v- vision for me is really critical. Uh, dreaming is essential. Uh, remembering is vital. Knowing and seeking knowledge is everything. Uh, and seeing what could be, and actually seeing what isn't there, and listening to what cannot speak, is well necessary. Um, and it's how we see the future, um, and what could be, and the future that we want. Um, and I just got a little um, side note here that I was really lucky a few years back to um, go to Stanford University in San Francisco. Uh, on an, uh, a Naitahu um, Alaskan Hawaiian exchange for Indigenous people, and um, what they what I picked up there was, um, you know, that's the home of Silicon Valley and Google and all that stuff, <laughs> and they sort of taught us that we don't know um, what the solutions are right now. You have to be brave enough to dream about it. <laughs> um, so you know. 20 years ago, we didn't really think everyone or lots of the world would have cell phones, but we do. Um, So think about that. Think about the people that thought about those crazy little things and how to bring it all together. Um, So that's what a crazy bunch of people sitting in Environment Cannery Organised Biodiversity Hui in the early 2000s did. We, um, We got together and we dreamed a little bit. And this was the picture that I drove on the way home from that first meeting that I had with these other crazy people um, about what we wanted for our home. Um, and you can see there, got the kākāriki in the middle. Don't know why I picked that bird, um, but it just came to me and that's what we drew up. Um, and when you have vision and you dream and you, um, you remember and you know and you imagine, Um, because when you do that, people gather, and they gather together and they're energised, they're inspired, 
they move, they talk, they do, and they make great things happen. And they do that together, and they do that for things greater than themselves. There you go, lots of happy people. Um, so that's at some of our Tiarakakariki plant outs that we've had over the last 15 years. Just a selection of um, crazy, happy people doing things for other people on other people's land, in fact. Um, sometimes just in their back garden or in their back paddock. Um, um, and then people that get together, they do things like this. Um, and they, they add um, value to a place that um, was crying out for it. Um, and they do it without money. They do it for love. And they find a way despite the odds and barriers and not knowing if they can do it or they could do it to start with. So this is just an image of what we call our Tiarakakariki green dots that are all over the Selwyn district now. And the important thing to remember is that none of these places, the trees that are there and the biodiversity that's now growing there, um, and the network of people that's created, none of it existed before we started. They might have been people by themselves doing their own planting on their own land, but there wasn't a network. And I see Paul in the room, and I know he's one of, our, one of the green dots on that map. Um, he definitely had some plants on his property before that. But, um, you know, none of, lots of these places just didn't exist. And we've been able to create that from, from nothing, from a bunch of crazy people talking about it in a room. Um, and then people, they get moving and they start talking to others. And they inspire each other. They find more money. They create some jobs even. And they conjure up new ways to do things. Uh, and they help others to find the courage to dream about their own homes and places and spaces and what could be. And this is why I believe we can plant our way out of climate change and an ecological crisis, because we're already doing it. Um, there are already enough of us who want to. We've organised ourselves without laws, without rules, without huge amounts of money or financial incentives. Um, but it most definitely requires those things I noted earlier, dreaming and um, knowing, um, but this is just the, an example here of all the groups that have sprung up in the last 20, 30 years to do amazing things, and they keep springing up, like the Kanuka Mid-Canterbury Re uh, Regeneration Trust and the Waimakariri Biodiversity Trust. They're only a, a couple of years old, um, and they both asked Te Arakakariki to help them set up. Um, they almost wanted us to do it for them, and we said, no, no, you've got to do it. We're not from where you're from. Um, you do it, and we'll help you. Um, and lots of other groups have done their own great things and there's probably some that are missing but um, what I really wanted to show was that there is so, so much good stuff going on um, and for Te Arakakariki, if we were crazy enough to think that we could make a difference about the 0.5 of 0.5% um, biodiversity left on the Canterbury Plains then hey, um, take that <laughs> um, and if Takakahu Kahukura and Banks Military Conservation Trust think we can create four core areas of a thousand hectares of biodiversity on the southern Port Hills, then yeah, we're going to go and try. We might be crazy, but hey. Um, and if the Otamahua Ecological Restoration Trust think they can reforest the whole island and have a thriving, thriving bird population, well, good, let's, let's back it, let's go there, uh, even though it might seem pretty crazy at the start. Can you click one? And um, finally, I'm just going to take you to a place that's pretty special to me and that I've been 
working on for a while. Um, you might recognise this place. Uh, it's Te Poho Tamatea uh, over at Rapaki. Um, and it's where I'm working with my relations, my relatives, um, to recloak our treasured maunga, our mountain, to provide for our future, to protect us, because you might know some rocks fell down off there and almost bust through our whole kainga, um, and to help give us hope and well-being. Um, and you'll see there's the said rock that went through the house, um, straight from our mountain. Um, and we're doing this, uh, we are going to look at doing a carbon forest on our land. And you can see the issues up on the screen that we're trying to deal with. We've got erosion, we've got rockfall, we've got lots of gorse and other things. Um, and we're constantly getting told we have to get rid of it. <laughs> but we sort of don't want to, we want to let the trees grow through it. Um, and so um, we want to restore the forest of Kahukura, which is one of our ancestor um, atua. Um, and we want to provide for our relatives, the, the birds, the manu. We want to create some jobs, maybe, and we want to provide a return. Uh, why can't we have it all? Um, and we're actually open to a mixed approach using both exotics and natives because we see goodness and good sense and diverse application. Now, I know that some people might think that's not right, um, but we're practical and we're courageous and it's in our blood to try new things and search out far horizons, to dream and to connect and to survive. Um, and we believe in ourselves and those we're working with and our land and our future, and we're not going anywhere. Um, that's the only land we have. That's all we got back from the Crown when we sold Canterbury way back, or Port Cooper, Littleton Harbour. Um, and we're also not going all in because we're not going to plant our whole land. We've actually got other uses that we're looking at on our land as well. Can you flick it forward? And we've started um, by just restoring our stream, Omaru stream, which comes from springs all around the mountain and flows down through our village and out to Whakaropo. Um And we're just doing that because we can. Um, and just go to the end. And um, just to finish with why again, why are we doing it? Well, you can see the big bird there. That'd be pretty cool to have back at our kainga every day, not just like every now and then, every day. Um, and that's my, that's my tawanui up there, my great-grandmother. I'm doing it for her, for what she did to fight for her land, uh, for Uncle Bill Gillies, who wanted the kedadu to come back, and for my tamariki down there, that, that was when they were a bit little, climbing up um, their home, uh, their maunga. And we're doing it for our home, of course, and to build a home for those birds. Because um, I said to my relations, they, they might have thought I was a bit crazy when I started telling them about this, but I said there's only way we're, only one way we're going to get Kedadu to come back here is that's to give them somewhere to live. So that's what we're trying to do. So um, kia ora koutou, hope you've enjoyed that, and I'm going to hand over to Jess. Kia ora. Uh, Craig, thank you so much for your welcome uh, for your acknowledgement of your whanauna, Naitua Huriri, uh, and most importantly for reminding us of the importance of vision. Uh, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa, uh, ko Jessica Halliday tōku ingoa, ko Aho Takai Whakahaere o Te Pūtahi, Centre for Architecture and City Making. So it's my great pleasure to join Craig in welcoming you uh, those in the room and those joining us online 
to can Christchurch plant its way out of climate change um, on behalf of Te Putahi. Uh, this is the second event in the 2022 editions of Christchurch Conversations towards 2030. We started off last year. There are five events you can watch on our YouTube channel and the first event from this year is also there. In this series, we're considering the ways we can work together in this place to address one of the greatest challenges we've ever faced. Before we kick off, there are two groups of organisations and people who've made today's event possible that we at Te Putahi would like to thank. Uh, that's our supporters and partners. Firstly, our series partner, Christchurch City Council, and also our research partner, the Urban Wellbeing Naikana Ora thread of building better homes, towns and cities, one of the national science challenges. And the second group, uh, we would very much like to thank this evening's uh, speakers, our knowledgeable speakers. Thank you all for accepting our invitation, uh, for getting us uh, along the journey of helping us better understand the challenges and potentials of and the role of trees in Ōtautahi Christchurch from the perspective of climate. So how will tonight roll? So we've got a series of speakers who've got short, quick-fire presentations to give and then a panel discussion. Uh, there is room in the panel discussion for questions from the floor and on YouTube. So if you're in either space, you can text your question to this number, 020-411-0915. Or if you're on YouTube, you can also put the question in the chat and our Te Putahi team will relay the questions to the panel. Uh, now, if it's anything to go by the last event, we get far more questions than we can manage. So if we don't get your question, uh, don't be too upset. We will try to take that question to our online audience after the event. Um, we have a packed program, so we'll keep our introductions really snappy. If you do hear a soothing chime, especially our speakers, uh, that is your one-minute mark. So be aware for that. So if any of you else hear it, it's not an illicit mobile phone going off. So here we go. With that in mind, who's going to help us understand where, who else is going to help us understand whether Christchurch can plant its way out of climate change? It's my pleasure to welcome our second speaker, Danny Rood from Toitu EnviroCare to talk about trees and the carbon balance. Danny. Please welcome him. Uh, kia ora koutou katoa, ko Danny Rutuku Ingawa, ko Te Ahumarangi Te Mauna, ko Te Awe, Te Awa Kairangi Te Awa. Um, thank you all for attending and um, giving me an audience to uh, hopefully use your ears to absorb some knowledge the way that the trees absorb carbon. So um, I'm a, a technical advisor at Toitu EnviroCare, which is a, a business arm of Manaki Whenua Landcare Research. I work in the technical team and basically do quite a bit of research comms and uh, that kind of thing around the science, particularly around climate change. Um, so just to get a general understanding where the audience is at, has anyone actually seen a tree before? Cool, quite a few of you, good. And climb trees as well? Yeah, good. Probably more uh, qualified to talk about this than I am, I guess. Um, let's see if this works. Cool. Right, we've got a clicker firing away. So we're going to answer, we'll try and address the uh, age-old question of can we plant uh, our way out of climate change in Ōtautahi Christchurch? 
So we're in a climate crisis. Um, basically, we've got too much carbon dioxide going up into the air and not enough being drawn down or absorbed. And that's the problem on planet Earth that we need to address. And trees are a, a big part of the uh, potential solution. And in a very basic sense, with a 101 kind of approach, like how do trees absorb carbon dioxide? And if you can think your way back to year four or five science or fourth or fifth form science or something, you would have come across a, a term called photosynthesis, which is not when photos get synthesised. But uh, basically what will happen is that the trees will absorb carbon dioxide um, and turn that into sugars, and that helps um, convert them into sugars, and that allows new tissue to grow in the form of leaves, of branches, um, roots and trunks. And so these trees are just acting as sponges, really, to absorb that carbon dioxide. Because the more carbon dioxide is in the air, um, in the atmosphere, the more warming we're going to see. And so those sponges, they're what we call carbon sinks. So they, it's like a sink in your, uh, in your kitchen. It's where you store the carbon, opposed to a carbon source. So things like uh, cars and, and planes and freight and manufacturing, they're carbon sources. So we want more sinks than sources. Um, another sort of way to think about that is a, is a bathtub. So uh, the planetary system on Earth here is like a bathtub. And we are running the taps, which is a general activity from you know, freight, uh, transport, manufacturing, keeping cool and staying warm. That all has an impact, and that's filling up the bathtub. So the planet Earth can only handle so much. But as well as the taps, we also have a sink. Um, and that's where the carbon sinks are absorbing um, that carbon. So the general premise is how do we balance this in terms of do, should we turn the taps off completely or should we just put a whole lot of holes in the, uh, in the bathtub to get the carbon out? So in a very basic sense, that's one way of looking at this climate change problem. And here's, here it is, here's another schematic of that. So we look at um, electricity, food and agriculture, industry, transport, they're all going up into the atmosphere. So 59, so let's just say 60% of that stays in the atmosphere, and the other 40% is absorbed by the ocean and uh, lands mainly via trees. And land sinks, that's what we're focusing on when we talk about trees. So carbon, the trees are removing carbon from the atmosphere. Um, and I just want to talk br briefly about carbon removal projects and carbon credits. So projects um, such as tree uh, forests that have been planted... Um, they draw down that CO2 like a sponge and they store it. And the good thing about that is that there is a monetary value uh, where you can, those trees being planted, you can turn those into carbon credits and sell those for financial gain. Um, those credits have to meet certain standards. Um, it should be, they should be additional. They should cause no net harm. So if you're planting a load of trees but you're destroying a river in the process, then your carbon credits you've created are quite questionable. Um, and in reality, all those credits should be created equally, um, as in, like, you plant it and it, they're permanent. Um, but in some systems, uh, you're seeing carbon trees being planted and people saying they're carbon credits, but they're just chopping them down three to four years, years later, which is a bit sketchy. Um, so just finally, um, with those credits, they can be traded on something called an emissions trading scheme. And so we have an, the New Zealand emissions trading scheme here in New Zealand that started in, in 2008, and the purpose of that is that it's a carbon market, um, which sets a price on carbon uh, as an incentive to get people to reduce their emissions. Um, because if you have to pay something, you're less likely to want to do it, in theory. Because uh, we've got some big systems in place and we've got to try and turn those around, so that can be tricky as well. 
Uh, and those credits can be bought. You know, the government has an auction and they, they give out those credits, which is one tonne of carbon dioxide equivalent, and that gives you the right to pollute. And once you've done your little pollution, you give the, the voucher back, the credit back to the government, and they strike it off a registry um, to make sure that it, the, the market's uh, doing what it's supposed to and people don't claim extra credits. So we have a, what's called a compliance market in New Zealand, but, um, and the credits are generated from projects such as planting trees. And that's the question is, should we be planting more trees so that there's more credits so that people can, uh, you know, pay to pollute? Or should we be looking at other things as well, like just reducing our general emissions? Um, and part of the issue at the moment is that our emissions trading scheme, we're seeing particip- participants plant trees um, to make bank uh, yeah, some good coin opposed to with the current prices of about 88, 87, 88 dollars per ton, um, opposed to reducing their emissions. And like there's finite spice space in, in Canterbury and, and New Zealand and, and the planet. So we can't just keep planting trees. Um, but it's that balance. But anyway, that's uh, how the carbon credits work in a very, very basic sense. Um, I won't bore you with the policy of it because it's very dry. <laughs> cool. Thanks. Uh, Kia ora, thanks Danny. We're on our way to getting our heads around this thing called carbon sequestration. So our next speaker is Dr David Hall. Dr David Hall researches policy, um, politics and policy with a focus on climate change, land use, sustainable finance and just transitions. He is a senior lecturer at AUT's School of Social Sciences and Public Policy and chair of AUT Sustainability Steering Group. As he's Auckland-based, David's presentation is tonight is a pre-recorded video. In this presentation, David is asking, can any city plant its way out of climate change? Kia ora tato, and thank you for remotely having me. So can Christchurch or any city plant its way out of climate change? More specifically, can it achieve net zero by compensating for its emissions from transport, energy, industry, etc., with carbon removals that come from newly planted trees. On paper, at least, this is possible. But in the real world, I will argue that this is not feasible, it's not fair, and it's not future-proofed. First of all, if every city in the world chose to offset its emissions by tree planting, rather than reduce its own emissions, There is simply not enough land in the world to hold all of those trees. One recent review of available scientific literature found that if we absolutely maximise the amount of vegetation all land on Earth could hold, we'd sequester enough carbon to offset about 10 years of greenhouse gas emissions at current rates. Just 10 years. And yet the fossil fueled economy which is causing global heating has existed for many decades already and could conceivably conceivably exist for many more unless we make deliberate choices to decommission it. At the global scale, deep decarbonisation is a lever that we must pull as well as reduce demand for high emissions goods and services. Tree planting and ecosystem restoration are important parts of the picture, but it simply isn't feasible to rely on trees alone. However, just because everyone can't feasibly offset their way out of the problem, this doesn't necessarily mean that some people can't. Perhaps some cities could rely on offsetting, 
as long as most other cities do decarbonize or reduce consumption. Indeed, carbon markets are designed to enable this kind of outcome, because if demand for offsets is strong and supply is constrained, then the price of carbon credits goes up and only the wealthiest cities in the world will be able to afford to keep living lavishly, to keep lugging around three tons of steel when they dash out in their Range Rovers to pick up a bottle of milk from the dairy around the corner. But this raises the issue of fairness. Should we really be enabling the world's wealthiest cities, which are typically the cities that have contributed most to historical emissions, to carry on with business as usual, simply because they can afford to do so. Many will say that this isn't fair, and reasonably so. From the perspective of climate justice, it should be the places that contributed most to historical emissions who should lead the way to net zero, giving poorer countries and poorer cities around the world a little more leeway to develop their economies. And there's another cause of unfairness, one which we've seen expressed in rural discontent over the, la discontent over the last few years. Because land use change, which is primarily driven by carbon sequestration, has major implications for the places in which it occurs. Let me give you a little back of the napkin calculation. Pre-pandemic, Christchurch's total greenhouse gas emissions were 2.7 million tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent. Pine forest in the Canterbury-Westland region sequesters around 20 to 25 tonnes of CO2 per hectare each year. So to offset Christchurch's emissions, we're talking about 108 to 136,000 hectares of pine forest. If you wanted to do it in native trees, then the growth rates will be much slower. So we might need three or four times more, maybe half a million hectares of land to be converted into unharvested forests for carbon farming. That's a lot of land use change, a lot of displacement and disruption to local communities, a lot of implications for rural economies because unharvested forests for carbon farming, once established, don't create much in the way of local jobs. A lot of people would think this outcome is unfair, if not economically self-sabotaging. And in some cases, I don't think that they'll be wrong. Personally, I think that Aotearoa New Zealand does need more forests than it currently has, and probably more forests than some farmers, like the groundswell folk, would be comfortable with. But large swathes of unharvested and potentially unmanaged forests is not a great outcome for local prosperity or resilience. This shouldn't be the price for allowing city dwellers to keep their streets clogged up with rangers, Navaras, Colorados, Santa Fe's, Outbacks, Outlanders and Defenders. Nary a spot of mud on any of them. That isn't fear. And if it's deeply unfair, it also won't be feasible because people will revolt. People will push back. Even if it's technically feasible to reach net zero this way, it isn't politically feasible because at some point, people won't stand for it. 
groundswell is only a taste of what could come. So it's unfair, it's infeasible, and it is also the very opposite of future-proofing. Recent research by climate scientist Nathaniel Melia found that Aotearoa New Zealand is on track to increasingly see fire weather that is equivalent to what Australia endured during its black summer of 2019-2020. This will especially be a problem along the east coast of New Zealand, Hawke's Bay, Marlborough, Canterbury and Otago. Is it really very sensible or prudent to be loading up these areas with monocultures of relatively flammable species like Pinus radiata? And what about the cars, SUVs, coal burners and so on, whose right to keep emitting is produced by these at-risk forests through offsetting? Well, that's not great future-proofing either, to have transport systems which are massively dependent on fossil fuels and so massively exposed to the volatility of global oil prices. If you thought the invasion of Ukraine was bad for petrol prices, then I suspect that it'll be nothing compared to the spiralling costs of oil exploration and extraction, climate-related disruptions to global supply chains, and the future regulatory shocks as politicians are forced by scared and angry constituencies into abrupt, unplanned, and messy shutdowns of fossil fuel infrastructure. We have interesting decades ahead. But there is a way through all this, a pathway ahead that is more feasible, fair, and future-proofed. And it does involve tree planting, to be sure, But rather than focus on a single value that trees produce, namely the value of carbon sequestration, we need to focus on all the values that trees and forests produce. Now, I'm sure Justin will talk to you about the many benefits of urban trees, of urban ngāhere, for social and environmental well-being, but also in rural landscapes, which I work a lot on. Trees deliver myriad benefits from creating natural habitat and ecological connectivity to erosion control, flood regulation, and more. If we get these other things right, if we establish forests that are resilient and productive and repair the landscape, then carbon comes along free for the ride as a co-benefit of forests that we want to live with and we want to care for. Let's face it. The carbon budget for 1.5 degrees is due to run out later this decade, and we're on track to exceed the carbon budget for 2 degrees not long after. As we crash through these Paris Agreement commitments and the climate damages start to intensify in the years ahead, the international community's tolerance for offsetting is going to rapidly diminish. You can see it happening already. We can't afford to use trees for indiscriminate offsetting to preserve the fossil fuel status quo. Instead, we need to phase down offsetting over the coming decades. What we need to do is immediately restrict offsetting to genuinely hard to abate emissions. But over the coming decades, we need to phase out offsetting significantly so that most carbon removals from forests are used to achieve drawdown rather than offsetting, where we are taking more carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere 
than we are putting up there. Because achieving net zero only prevents further warming. It lands us on a plateau. But if we don't like the temperature that we've landed at, the world needs to be net negative to turn down the global thermostat. Our natural ecosystems remain the only proven way to achieve this at scale. But how will people pay for forests if not by offsetting? Climate change policy needs to find ways to pay for this wider suite of benefits that forests and natural ecosystems bring. We might invest in forest restoration as a form of historical reparations, a way to right the wrongs of deforestation that violated the Treaty of Waitangi. We might invest in trees for their biodiversity and adaptation benefits, their capacity to function as natural infrastructure to reduce the risks of floods, erosion and sedimentation. We might even, a rather old-fashioned idea, invest in trees for their timber and woody biomass to increase the linkages between forestry and the burgeoning bioeconomy, as well as the opportunities for mass timber construction to decarbonize the built environment. It's in this direction that we can plant our way out of at least some of the problems of climate change, but in a way that's more feasible, more fair, and more future-proofed. Thank you very much. Ngā mihi kia koutou. All right, whose mind is a bit blown? Uh, mine certainly is. So thanks so much, David, for that. Uh, however, don't think that's where it ends because there's still a lot to discuss and our next speaker is going to help us uh, as well. Our next speaker is Dr Justin Morganroth, uh, who is Associate Pre Professor at the University of Canterbury's School of Forestry. He's interested in understanding the challenges faced by urban trees and the critical roles they play in cities around the world. And this evening he'll talk about the critical role of urban forests in a changing climate. Please welcome Justin. Great, thanks for having me. Are urban forests the solution to climate change? I guess following uh, the previous speaker has been quite a privilege for me because he answered that question for me. Um, urban forests are most certainly not the solution to climate change. Lots of previous research has shown this. We've seen in the US excellent nationwide research that shows that urban forests store about 3% of the carbon stored in all forests across that country, just a fraction of all the carbon stored in forests. And that's simply put because even though cities have, in many cases, hundreds of thousands or even millions of trees in them, it's just a fraction of the total forest, of the total number of trees and forests in any given geog geographical area. So we do know that while urban forests play an important role in sequestering carbon, they are not the solution to climate change. David Hall also told us that if we wanted to sequester the 2.7 million tons of emitted carbon dioxide that Christchurch produced, um, or carbon dioxide equivalent, excuse me, that, Car that Christchurch has produced, we'd need to plant up, what did he say, 108 to 136,000 hectares in pine. For scale, that's all of Banks Peninsula. It's 115,000 hectares. Can you imagine planting all of Banks Peninsula in plantation radiata pine? He said if you did it, the same thing in natives, it would be three to four times that area. 
I don't think this is the solution for us going forward. Urban trees have a lot of benefits, but in terms of solving climate change, that's not their role. So that's not to say they don't have many other benefits. And I think a really important one for us here in Christchurch and for cities around the world is heat mitigation. Urban trees, urban forests as a whole, have incredible benefits in terms of mitigating many of the negative consequences of climate change. Our neighbors to the north, those folks in the northern hemisphere, just experienced one of the hottest summers on record, right? Those heat waves were incredible to see on the news every night. I read recently that France, as a country, has reported 11,000 excess deaths as a consequence of those heat waves between June and August of this year. That's 11,000 people that died as a consequence of the heat waves in three months. That wouldn't have died otherwise. These aren't numbers to scare people. They're reality. They are the truth. I'm not being hyperbolic. I'm not exaggerating. These are the reported numbers. I think that urban forests have an incredible role to play in terms of uh, reducing the urban heat island effect. Urban trees, through shade, through transpiration, cool the surrounding air. You can see the image at right there. Well, the image at left is rather lovely. People congregating underneath the shade of a tree. The image at right, you can see differences of tens of degrees between the open area and underneath that shaded canopy. Really, urban forests can make a huge difference in this regard. They also make, I guess, a huge difference in many other regards. There are myriad benefits to urban forests. They provide clean air, clean water. They provide physical and mental health for citizens of Christchurch. They are correlated with increased property values. Um, They provide, I guess, opportunities for food gathering, right? They have all of these additional benefits. So what's the situation in Christchurch? The map that you see before you is part of this report. If you have any interest in knowing what Christchurch's um, urban forest situation is, you're welcome to grab one of these reports. I believe they're at the back of the room. Don't stand up right this very second and do it. Uh, In Christchurch, citywide, we've got about 13.5% canopy cover. So what that means is we've got... 13.5% of the city is covered in tree cover, right? It's covered in trees. But there's quite a large disparity in terms of where those trees are. The leafy neighborhoods like Fendleton, Kashmir, the coastal area of Christchurch, um, each of those wards have got upwards of 20% canopy cover. But in contrast, if you're in Hallswell, if you're in Heathkit, if you're in Hornby, if you're in Linwood, uh, you've got less than 10% canopy cover. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that all of the benefits that I talked about, the heat mitigation, the stormwater mitigation, the air pollution removal, all of that's related to tree cover. So the neighborhoods that have lots of tree cover get those benefits. The ones that don't have lots of tree cover, um, well, simply put, they don't get those benefits. So looking forward, where do I think we're going here in Christchurch? Well, I'm actually really optimistic. Despite starting from a low, relatively low canopy cover, point, 13.5% is not a particularly high canopy cover. Uh, Wellington, for reference, is 30%. Auckland is quite a bit higher. I think they're up at 19% as well. So Christchurch is starting from a fairly low point, but I'm really genuinely optimistic about where we're headed. We have very good people working in this space who are working extremely hard to increase canopy cover towards a stated goal of around 20%, right? The Christchurch City Council is about to release our very first ever 
urban forest plan, which is really exciting. It's going to sort of describe how we get to that 20%. We do a lot of planting of trees in the city. Every single year, the Christchurch City Council plants roughly 1,000 specimen trees in parks and in streets, and tens of thousands more native trees in restoration projects around the city. So there's a huge amount of planting that goes on. Again, great reasons to be optimistic. But there's room for improvement. We still allow mature trees to be removed from a variety of different sites, development sites, redevelopment sites, greenfield sites, um, to allow for um, intensification, development, so on and so forth. I think intensification is actually critically important in order to preserve or conserve existing uh, canopy cover. We also have, in addition to the challenges of how do we sort of marry or balance uh, tree cover and housing, we also have this simply put the challenge of climate change. There's a lot of species in Christchurch right now that are going to struggle with increases in temperature of 1.52 degrees, right? And the variable precipitation that comes along with climate change. So there are challenges, but I remain optimistic and I believe we will move towards that 20% uh, canopy cover goal, uh, well distributed across the city. Thank you very much. Panel members to come up now, thank you. Now one of two of these people you will will have met, but they're joined by Larry Burrows, who is a um, a very experienced eco- ecologist from Landcare Research, and I'll just squeeze past her, Meg Beck, who is a landscape architect, um, and, and included amongst her roles, she's on the Climate Change Committee of the Institute of Landscape Architects. So I'd just like to start off with something that hopefully will get all of us thinking about how wonderful trees are. Um, I want to know, Danny, you're first. Your uh, favourite tree species or maybe a favourite treed space in the city? I'll, um, I'll answer both as favourite species would be Silver Beach. Um, it's great, you know, we're out hiking and stuff uh, out in the mountains. And locally, uh, Fisher Ave in Beckenham, so just uh, a couple of streets over from my flat. Um, it's almost cartoon-like in how perfect it is. <laughs> nice. Uh, Justin? Yeah. Um, I think I'll just go with a favourite individual tree. So I'm trying to think about, the, you know, the, I guess, the personal connection that I have with individual trees around the city. Um, and in the Botanic Gardens, right by the Peacock Fountain, you might know a tree. It's a Nootka Cypress where you can basically walk into the tree. It's a huge pyramid. And inevitably, when you go in there, there's kids monkeying around in there. It's fantastic. So that's sort of a personal favourite of mine. Meg? So I, I love the large native trees. Michelle and I put them in projects at every chance, so this is going to be a real contradiction when I say my favourite tree space is the um, heirloom fruit tree orchard, which has been put in the public space of Radley Park by the Roy Mata Tree Commons. And Larry? Um, I, could, I could have lots of trees. The, probably my favourite species would be Kanuka. Because oh, it's, that's an unusual it's, choice. It's an early successional species that we're talking about planting, but in fact often Kanuka manages to seed itself, and so it establishes quite freely around the place. And my favourite place in town is um, Rickett and Bush. 
this is a neat little remnant of what forests used to be like in Canterbury. So I think this panel discussion is going to go a bit all over the place, but I want to start with David Hall and his argument that only genuinely hard to abate emissions should be able to be offset. Um, Danny, this is kind of your area. What, what do you think? Yeah, um, if we've got that slide up of the uh, pyramid. Oh, look, we've got visual aids. <laughs> yeah. So I can't claim credit for this. But when it comes to emissions and trees and, and climate change, uh, we have something called a mitigation hierarchy. Um, and so if we start at the top, what we're trying to do is actually avoid emissions first. Um, so that's our most favoured option. And from there, we're like, so say we drive cars that rely on fossil fuels. So it's like, I should avoid that, in theory. Um, and from there, I, want to, I should just reduce my use. It's probably the next best option. So it's like, okay, you do have a fossil fuel car. Let's just use it 20% less. Um, and then another option is to like, well, you could substitute that. So you could move to a hybrid or an electric vehicle, uh, costs pending. Um, and then from there, like you can absorb carbon to offset some, or not, you know, partial to further reduce things. And then from there, offset, uh, to, so you can get to have a carbon neutral situation where, say, you, you or your organisation was responsible for emitting 50 tonnes of carbon, you can uh, reduce it by 50 through uh, some tree planting. So while it's part of the solution, it's a tool, uh, you know, it's a tool in the toolkit, uh, avoid first and then go from there. So let's just drill down a bit mm. and think about the situation in New Zealand. We have an emissions trading scheme. Um, is it possible under that scheme to, to effectively just offset to justify carbon-intensive operations and carbon-intensive lives? No. Uh, <laughs> one reason that David uh, mentioned was in terms of practicality. Um, so there's a lot of land... There's a lot of people competing for land space in terms of um, either housing or um, supplying protein in the form of food. So there could be an example with a farm. Someone's like, hey, I, I could plant here, um, but if we're supposed to move into um, lower emissions diets, um, if you're planting in a space that stops someone converting from, say, a dairy farm to an oat farm, um, you need to think about those balances as well. So um, there's quite a few knock-on effects. But in general, um, no, you can't, we can't keep planting our way out of that, this, this problem. Right. I, I guess um, my question was also, does the emissions trading scheme as it's currently structured enable, I guess, companies to say, never mind, mm. I'll just pay for some credits? Yeah, and some of the settings, um, so the, car, the emissions trading scheme in New Zealand has gone th through a few iterations in the it's actually open for consultation now in terms of the credits that, are, that can be supplied. Uh, so there's that to consider. And at the moment, like in the past, it was worth so little, like the cost of a carbon credit was so little, there was no incentive to reduce. It was just like, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing and just pay the... Um, so carbon credits were too cheap. Yes. So they, as a market okay. tool, it wasn't working. There was no signal to be like, well, actually, um, you know, say it cost... I think in, in one term in the national government, it was there was a two-for-one scheme, so it was $25 a tonne, but if you bought a tonne, you got a spare tonne, so it was two-for-one. <laughs> so it was effectively a $12.50 carbon tax. Um, and so if something... So, you know, it's like, OK, well, I'm paying $12.50 for my emissions, whereas the technology available, say, it costs 70 tonnes to 
reduce. I'm like, well, I'll just pay the $12.50. So, but, but, but now it's moving towards a, there is more of a price, around, you know, it's in the mid-80s now uh, for per tonne carbon dioxide um, emissions equivalent. So the more that keeps going up, that's when we're more likely to, we'll hit a tipping point and that people will like, actually, we need to reduce our gross emissions and the uh, planting trees and offsetting, they're like, they can deal with the stubborn stains of our business models. So maybe Larry, you might have a view on this. Net zero, we hear a lot of organisations, uh, the city has a net zero target. Um, to what extent is net zero a valid thing to aim for? Or just okay. greenwashing, you know, like we can all say there's a target. Yeah, so there's, some, there's quite a lot of things already gone on that we've just heard from all of the um, presenters. There's, there's a few basic things I think that we kind of forget. One is that sequestration by trees reduces no emissions. Emissions are separate to sequestering. You can't release um, fossil fuels that have been buried in the earth for millennia, millions of years, and expect that you can suck them back down from the atmosphere in a shorter time. All trees and sequestration by trees is finite. Everything stops growing. And so any sequestration by trees is temporary. So we're buying ourselves a bit of time to get our house so, so A, we have to be reducing emissions. And as Danny's just pointed out with his triangle, is that emissions reduction is the absolute key, and then at the end of that, if there's any little bits that are difficult or slow, then we could think about offsetting as an alternative. Um, but it needs to be minimised. For Christchurch City as a whole, it's actually difficult. Um, Justin pointed out this, is at the moment the, the, the carbon associated with the trees across the city is kind of almost negligible really, it's, it's tiny, how would you actually uh, deal with it, how would you quantify it, how would you then assign it to people, because in the end it's people's emissions that sort of count and do you divvy it out or do you give it to the council or how do you manage that. Um, there's, there's a whole lot of um, questions that I, that I have that, that about um, emissions are associated with people and people's activities, and they vary. They vary depending on whether or not you're urban or whether or not you're rural, or whether or not you're running a business or an industry. Could I put up those other, some, a little set of slides? I've got, there's a couple of three, three or four extra slides. Here we go. Just coincidentally, a week or two ago, Stats New Zealand brought out their annual estimates of emissions per capita across the country. And I pulled out the, the Canterbury numbers per capita. And on the left-hand side, the emissions per capita from household sources in Canterbury is 1.5 tonnes. That's remarkable. I reckon it's incredibly low. In fact, it went down over the last year, mostly because of COVID. <laughs> it's a good thing. 
Of that 1.5 tonnes per capita, 88% of it is related to transport. So that would be a Car. sector to, to focus <laughs> on rather than... Well, that could be. But then the people in those households, are they responsible just for their household or are they using the business and the industrial economy of the wider area? So if you include the emissions from industry and the and business in Canterbury, it works out at 5.6 tonnes per capita. And then Christchurch is just has got rural environs, and if we build in all of the agricultural land of Canterbury, suddenly the emissions per capita go to 18.5 tonnes. This is quite horrific, <laughs> and it's a bit bigger problem to deal with. Mm. And a much bigger problem for um, to counteract with trees. trees. So Jess looks like she's got a question. Sorry, Larry. We'll yes. Just... Um, hello. Uh, there are lots of questions coming through on okay. both text and online. Um, how does anybody feel about their knowledge of tussock grasslands? We have a question here. We have a lot of tussock grasslands in Canterbury. How does that compare with forests for carbon offsetting? Can any of you answer that? Larry can. Larry, that is one of yours. <laughs> um, most carbon is associated with well, the woodier things are, the more carbon there is. And the more herbaceous they are, the less carbon there is. And so in tree systems, there is hundreds of tonnes of CO2 equivalent in wood. And in grassland systems, there is a few singles or five or ten tonnes right. per hectare. So someone might also want to know about the wetlands. I know you've done something <laughs> in wetlands. There are moves afoot to have carbon credit schemes for wetlands. Yeah, there's, there's always been interest in wetlands and, and can you sequester... Well, everybody knows wetlands have got peat, and peat is this huge resource. Globally, I think the carbon associated with peat wetlands is greater than the carbon in forests, so it's incredibly important as a stock, but it's not changing very much. And so, so not a great sink. There has been some measurements done in New Zealand and shown that it's a small sink. It's um, sinking one to two tonnes extra per hectare per annum. But that's the, the uh, swamps that that's been done on are quite limited. And globally, it's kind of treated as near zero. Jess, you have another one? Well, there's more than one question about oh. this. And I, I suspect Justin and Meg will be great on this one. So any idea why... Um, Good tree cover seems to belong to richer suburbs and is missing in poorer <laughs> one. <laughs> How do Historic we solve reasons? the problem like Hornby? Might be another way. It's just the age-old inequality, isn't it? I mean, we know, we know trees are good. We know we should have them. Well, planting in general. I mean, it's, it's therapeutic. It increases our biodiversity. Um, I've got no answer except to say I, I think we've got some really good examples coming through of where trees aren't big and scary and they don't cause messes and long-term maintenance problems. And I think we are getting braver and better. And there's examples like Radley Park where Rumata Food Commons are planted. 
So I, I don't know why, but I hope we are getting better at it. Justin, your map had some areas that really looked like tree deserts, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Hornby, Linwood, those kind of areas. So they're, they're not new developments. What do we do to increase the tree canopy cover in existing suburbs? So if you do want to put that map, oh, there it is. Thank you very much to the AV team. Um, a lot of the, the, the lower canopy cover neighbourhoods are sort of in West Christchurch, and their land that in the district plan would be zones rural, right? So, um, so you can see very clearly there that a lot of the rural land um, is you know, doesn't have a great deal of tree cover. Um, you bring up the, the, the question of, I guess, neighborhood age. To a degree, that, that's another contributing factor. I mean, um, a lot of the leafier neighborhoods tend to have been neighborhoods that have been around for uh, quite a lot longer, had trees established sort of 120-odd years ago, and the current, I guess, uh, canopy cover is a reflection of sort of those big, mature trees. Um, it's not to say that there aren't any sort of older properties out in, um, in, in West Christchurch as well. There certainly are. Um, uh, but many of the newer neighborhoods tend to be um, relatively low canopy cover. I have a um, question that is probably for Meg, actually. There are lots of ways in which trees are good. Why aren't there more of them? Why do most of us have a story about someone in our street who moved in and chopped things down? <laughs> How do we turn that around? Um, I, I agree. I was really taken by Justin's slide of that new development in Ireland, which we drive past every Saturday morning with all of the trees gone. So this is a multi-layered question, but I think what we need to look at, just to keep it short, is new developments. Um, and again, I'd like to say I think we're starting to learn that um, in terms of canopy cover and um, stormwater management, we're getting better. And I have a slide to bring up, and landscape architects are going to laugh themselves silly because the person who would like to bring up the, um, the rain gardens, the person who designed this rain garden planting is actually in the room tonight. It's Adrian Taylor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And my point about this is it's now more than six years old and it's not turned out to be some maintenance nightmare. They're still looking as beautiful as ever and they're highly functional. They, they filter and they hold water in a stormwater event so it doesn't overflow the pipes. Or, and we need more of this sort of thing now that we're proving they're doable. The, the, the question was about how do we convince people to sort of keep trees or retain trees rather than getting rid of them as soon as they move in. Um, and I think one of, the, one of the issues that we have is, is we acknowledge that trees are a community benefit. Most of the benefits that they provide are for, you know, the community at large. Air pollution removal, heat mitigation, stormwater mitigation, wildlife habitat, so on and so forth, right? But the costs are borne by the individual landowner. So we've got this imbalance between, you know, the individual landowner has to pay for maintenance of that tree, the arborists come over to take care of it, um, they've got to rake up the leaves every autumn, so on and so forth, but it's the community at large that gets the benefit. And so I think if we want to convince people to, uh, to retain mature trees on their properties, um, we need to start looking at, at, at I guess, incentives for those people um, that help to offset the costs that they have to bear. 
Can we yes, stay on this theme? Yes. Um, because, you know, this question comes up a lot in Christchurch and there was a very significant vote a week ago um, partially driven by this issue, uh, which is what's the conflict between the incre- increasing housing, and it's often a medium-density housing, uh, for growing for our growing population versus increasing canopy coverage? Nick, this might be another... Designer question. Well, absolutely. It's, it comes down to we do need to be able to live closer to to where we work so that we can do this, you know, avoid, reduce thing, as we were shown in that really nice pyramid. Um, we can't just carry on sprawling out across good food land, but we... So we need to look at other ways that we can increase tree canopy, and um, it, every little bit counts, you know. Like, if you look at a school... Say if you planted just 10 metres by 10 metres at, at a school. It doesn't sound like much, but there's 2,000, more than 2,500 schools in New Zealand. So suddenly you're talking about a lot of extra trees around the place. Jess? Well, I did um, wonder, Michelle, if you thought we had time for the Worcester Street story. Yes, OK, let's, let's explore the Worcester Street story. <laughs> um, and it'd be interesting to hear your views on the mm. value of protection. Mm. Um, Rick, do you mind bringing up the big Worcester Street tree? So we investigated oh, this. So this Michelle, the photo I took. Michelle took this because she it's on her cycling route, and this is a new development um, by Grocop Freer in Worcester Street. It's around three hundred and fourteen ish. Um, Nineteen dwellings, so 19 new townhouses, and they kept this enormous tree. And the reason, we, we were curious, you know, it's a big issue in Christchurch, medium density is the enemy of trees. So we looked into it, and it turns out this is a heritage-protected oak. It's over 100 years old, so it is actually protected in the district plan. Um, and we wondered, Meg and Justin and anyone else, whether you thought is that the only way to ensure that we don't lose trees? Are there other incentives? The developers have also kept, you can see the rhododendron, that's not listed, they kept it. They also moved a 25-year-old cherry blossom tree as well um, in this plan. So they, they have kept a few that weren't protected. Incentives that aren't legislation? It's a package of tools, right? So no single tool from the toolbox will will sort of allow for these types of great outcomes. You, you, need, you need tree protection, right, through things like listing them in the district plan. You need incentives for developers to want to retain trees and then for future landowners to want to retain those trees as well. Um, I can think of another situation uh, that's probably maybe eight or nine years ago now. Um, up on Papua Nui Road, um, there's a church just sort of, I guess, Vic- Victoria Street. There's a church up there that was also um, forced to, to hold on to a tree. They redeveloped the church. Um, the whole church was completely redeveloped. They kept the tree. Two years later, the tree was gone because obviously they really didn't want it in the first place. They were forced to keep it, and they found a way to get rid of it eventually. So, you know, again, I don't think that forcing people to keep a tree is a great idea because if they really want it gone, they'll find ways to get rid of it. You, you have to want them. You have to, to find ways to get them to see the tree for the benefit that it provides and to want the tree. 
And I, I would say in this case what they've created is a shared space that anyone who owns any of the townhouses in this area can go and sit out under the tree, which is kind of nice. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. You know, with any of these sort of, you know, medium density uh, residential dwelling areas, um, it is important to retain, I guess, a relatively large sort of consolidated area to to have the opportunity for large trees to grow up. Um, Because when each individual property only has, you know, whatever, 10 square meters of outdoor area, you might get these tiny little, I don't know, tiny little kofis or tiny little flowering cherries out there. But realistically, those aren't going to provide the same degree of benefit that a 120-year-old oak is going to provide. So we do need to retain, even in these sort of shared dwelling areas, some sort of communal space to allow for... um, uh, the larger plantings. Do you feel like technical questions? ETS type questions? Go for it. Does anyone know what is the time delay between paying to offset an emission and the point at which the trees planted actually sequester that amount of carbon? And I know it will be dependent Larry. on so many <laughs> things, Larry. This is a, sort of seems to be a common misnomer. You can't validly account for carbon in the future. You can only offset carbon that exists now. So schemes like buying um, offsets that's going to plant a tree for you in the, sometime in the future are to- totally waste of time. Don't spend your money. The, money has to, the carbon has to be already in the bag that you're going to buy with your offset. It further adds to the argument that we should be reducing our gross emissions. So we're using some pretty um, tricky to use tools in the form of tree planting to soak up those uh, sort of out, outstanding emissions to get rid of. And um, yeah, I agree. <laughs> it's, uh, oh, the, the other point I was going to add is that with those trees, um, things like indigenous species like Pinus radiata, they're what we call your sprinters because they do grow a lot quicker and they could absorb the carbon dioxide faster than uh, native. Um, but quite often with, indig- uh, with exotic species like the pine is that they are chopped down after 29 years and they're not absorbing anything when they're chopped down. Can I just make a comment on yeah. fast growing? I think fast growing trees are a mistake. What should be happening fast is emissions reduction should be happening fast and sequestration by trees should be happening slow and sustainably for as long a possible time as we can make it. So many questions. Okay. Do you want more? Yes, I'm, I'm looking at you. We've okay. got three minutes left. So that shaded temperature slide was captivating. Justin? Uh, eroding chunks of asphalt road corridors, public realm, seem to have a multiplicity of benefits, i.e. getting rid of them, why aren't more, why aren't we taking up road reserve with planting? So certainly, you know, uh, street catchments have amongst the lowest canopy cover of any sort of land use. Um, and I'm sure that's due to a variety of reasons. Maybe we can get Toby to answer some of that. I'm Um, I'm wondering if, Jess, would you mind just passing the mic a couple of places that way? So we're very glad that Toby Chapman, who's the city arborist, has, um, has popped into this conversation. So we can ask you, what, what are some of those barriers? You know, you look at 
um, berms and road reserves and things and go, how come there aren't trees here? So, Toby, how come there aren't trees here? Uh, yeah, so there's a lot of challenges that come through planting in the street. One of the biggest challenges is underground services. So quite often you see a grass berm and you wonder why there isn't a tree. We'll try to plant a tree there, but if there's underground services, we can't plant over top of those services or we can't plant too close to them. So a, a large number of those spaces that you wonder why we haven't got a tree there, most of the time it's because there's underground services. The other reason is we don't have... We don't always have grass berms that are wide enough, so we need to give the tree soil volume uh, and we need to give it space to grow. And when we've got those narrow berms planting in those, we, uh, we suppress the tree so it doesn't get to reach its full potential or it outgrows that space and causes damage to the infrastructure. So we actually need to design our road corridors to facilitate trees. Hey, so, Toby, have you got a rule of thumb as to roughly how wide your berm has to be? Uh, yet we generally try not to plant in anything less than 1.5 metre okay. wide berm. Um, again, that's services dependent and that's also species dependent as well. And can, you, can we find out whether there are services in the way in our street? Yep, so you can go online and you can put in an application on our website to uh, apply to have a tree planted out on your berm and uh, someone will go out, we'll check for services and see if we're able to. I'm looking at Rick. I think we uh, might be out of time. I'm very sorry to anyone who has not had their question answered. I'm sure there's many of them. We'll... Thank you all. Yes, right. thank you. And without further ado, leave the stage. And while our wonderful panellists leave the stage, I'd like to invite Kerry Mulligan to come up. Kerry... Um, I think you're just going, going to go to the lectern. So very briefly, we're now going to have another look at some of the things that plants that aren't trees do, an example of, of how they can be used in the city in the form of the Otakaro Orchard Green Roof. Kia ora, good evening. Um, I'm Dr Kerry Mulligan. I'm just going to speak to you a little bit about tonight about the Otakaro um, Orchard project, which is just a block or so over that way, and particularly the green roof um, that is going to be on the top of that building. Um, so as you can see here from this uh, render, we're talking about a green roof here that's not just got shrubs and grasses on it, it's actually got quite um, intensive planting on it, so some, some shrubs and trees on there. So it might be different to what you've seen of a, of a green roof before, and that's actually quite exciting for a number of reasons. Um, so the project um, starts, and at Field Studio, um, I'd say all of the, the projects start these days with values being the driver of it, so values at the start of the project, um, and they are what guide it and um, help make the decisions. Um, and with this project, um, with the planting, it's demonstrating what's possible, um, exploring these things of what we can do, how we can we apply these things to Christchurch. It's reinforcing what mana whenua are trying to do, um, in terms of um, bringing back the planting to places. It's also opening conversations about what is possible um, and bringing together partnerships of skills and knowledge and expertise on these projects that we can explore and really find out what's, what's possible. Um, so, yeah, I, I spoke about an intensive green roof um, and, and, 
what that means is that, um, so there's extensive and intensive um, green roofs, extensive are the ones where there's just a small amount of soil and it's sort of um, grasses and things like that, um, which does have some benefits, but um, this one's an intensive green roof. It's got significant depths of soil and therefore you can have significant planting on it, which aids in the biodiversity, um, creating different ecosystems and things like that. The other thing about this roof is that it's... Um, it's it's elevated, um, so it's potentially going to be a protected area for those species that don't normally find a place in the city um, to go to. Um, what's a little bit different about this roof as well, it's not just a green roof, it's also a blue-green roof. Um, the blue there refers to water, so this is quite different from um, most roofs. Um, there's no drainage at the bottom, so what happens when it rains is that the water collects it, some of it's stored in the soil, um, the plants use some of it, but the rest of it literally just fills up like a pond, um, and it has to actually reach the top before it overflows over the top. And this is going to be quite beautiful. I invite you all, when, when it's open there, go over there on a really rainy day and wait for the waterfall. Because um, what's going to happen is that that water fills up and um, overflows over the parapet and down into a swale. Um, this project has no other uh, pipes or drainage for stormwater. The roof, the swales, and the on-site storage are dealing with all of that stormwater. So it's gone from treating stormwater as a problem to really valuing it as a resource and keeping it all on site. Um, yeah. So. Uh, that was the south part of the roof that I just showed you before. This is the north part. So you can see here it's also it's a green roof. It's um, storing water. It's going to a tank. And there's also solar panels on there. So there's, um, they're for electricity. But um, the benefit of having solar panels on a green roof is as well is that it keeps the temperatures down. And that makes the solar panels more efficient. So you can see now we've got water storage. We've got ecosystem places, we've got more efficient solar panels, so we're stacking these functions in, in the same area, which is really exciting um, about this project. Yeah, so this is the, um, the roof as it is now. Obviously it's not planted yet, it needs the, um, the medium, but we can really see that it's storing that stormwater, it's providing a function already, um, and what we're really excited about is seeing what this roof can do, um, finding out like these things that we're excited about, storing water, is doing these things, how does that work and, and how can we learn from it and apply it in other places? Thanks. Kia ora koutou katoa, ko Eric Kennedy aho. Um, I'm Eric Kennedy, I'm a poet, critic, editor and climate activist and it's my pleasure to have been asked to bring a poet to each of the five 2022 Christchurch Conversation events because artists wrestle with the enormity of the climate crisis too um, and they bring a special emotional expertise that adds to the discussion and makes the issues come alive um, I'm really delighted to introduce our poet tonight, who is James Norcliffe. Um, he's a venerable fixture of Canterbury and Altero letters. He's published 10 collections of poetry, most recently Deadpan with Otago University Press in 2019. He's the award-winning writer of 11 novels for children and young people. Um, and he's also a marvelous orchardist who lives in Church Bay and has the most wonderful 
fruit trees, which is why I thought he'd be the perfect person to read for us tonight. And he's going to share some of his work with us, possibly about trees, possibly not. Please join me in welcoming James Norcliffe. Tanakwe, Eric. Kira Katal. Um, yeah, as Eric said, uh, I'm a tree hugger from way back. Uh, Eighteen years ago, Joan and I bought a, a large section at Church Bay, uh, built a house, built a garden, and planted trees, lots of trees. I have to confess our motive wasn't to save the planet, though. Uh, we knew it wouldn't be doing any harm, but our motive was spiritual. Trees are good for the soul. I once heard a radio talk by an urban environmental planner who claimed that every office worker, for the sake of their psychological well-being, should be able to see a tree from every office window, and that resonates with me. Well, my brief this morning is to share an environmentally conscious poem or two of mine with you. The most famous uh, bracketing of poetry and trees is, of course, Joyce Kilmer's. I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as a tree. However, I prefer Ogden Nash's reply. I think that I shall never see a billboard lovely as a tree. Perhaps unless the billboards fall, I'll never see a tree at all. As we've already heard, uh, Christchurch has long uh, prided itself with the name the Garden City, a sobriquet which persisted in its, despite its falsity an occasional misguided attempt to rebrand, who can forget fresh each day, a slogan that suggested the city was in the milk distribution business. Many years ago, our good friend, the late Eric Beardsley, who was the information officer at the time at the University of Canterbury, invited us to look through the newly built height building housing the university library. He took us to the roof uh, for the view, and it was amazing. Uh, we've already heard about the suburbs of Christchurch. The Fendleton side of, of Rickerton Road from above looked like a forest. All you could see was trees. The other side was a treeless wilderness of roofs. Increasingly, Christchurch is more the billboard city than the garden city. As we've already heard tonight, Christchurch has 13% tree coverage, as low as 7 in some suburbs. Sydney and Vancouver have 26, Singapore just under 30, and New York a whopping 39. In Frankfurt, three out of four urban residents live within 99 metres of leafy, of a leafy green space. Garden, city, anyone. Now the poems I'd like to read, the first one is called Letter to Oumuamua. You may remember Oumuamua was a visitor three or four years ago uh, possibly from uh, a, a superior civilization. I like to think that. It may just have been an asteroid, but there's arguments about it. Dear Oumuamua, this morning I saw a willow's tree in first spring, flush of green in a paddock full of black sleeping steers. It was a prayer in the still air, morning sun and the sea beyond, Nothing to make the new leaves quiver except celebration. I note you didn't hang around, dear Umuamua. 
One brief look was all it took before you hoisted your great light sail and hightailed it out of here. I understand your misgivings, Umuamua. Umuamua. I have them too. But it's... We're not all bad, really. A kind farmer allowed this willow to live, give shelter to his cattle as they wait for the abattoir. This has to be worth something, doesn't it? And from this distance, the sea is blue and apparently cold, the hills almost green, the cattle innocent, and the willow celebrating. I'm not saying come back, dear Umuamua. We do know what we're doing. We're not all bad. We just can't help ourselves. <laughs> and uh, this, this poem perhaps addresses more the climate change of the equation. It's called Living in the Goldilocks Zone. Um, and the Anthropocene in which we live, we, we only live here because it's not too hot and not too cold. We used to enjoy living here. There were quince trees and apricot trees blossoming in our garden. Life was nice. The lawns were neatly trimmed and the edges contained. In the distance was a pleasant view of a well-behaved ocean. Of course, there was that ramshackle batch deep in the woods where the bears lived. But it was easy to avoid. We just didn't go there, preferring our raised beds and the exemplary manners of beans, carrots and broccoli. Life, as I said, was nice. We lived within careful parameters and had circumscribed extremes. We used to enjoy living here on our pretty little planet. Porridge was always provided at the designated time. But now the lawns are brown, as dry and crunchy underfoot as cornflakes. The carrots droop and shrivel. And all the bowls little, middle-sized and extra-large, are much, much too hot to touch, and every bear is angry. Thank you very much, Arahanui Teatwe. Thank you, James. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us this evening. Um, a huge thanks to our speakers. I feel like we've only just begun this conversation. You've so greatly stimulated our thinking, our ambitions, and I hope our actions as we leave here this evening and in the weeks ahead and the months ahead. A huge thank you to, again to our supporters and partners, the Christchurch City Council and the Urban Wellbeing Research Thread of Building Better um, National Science Challenge. Um, thank you to Network Waitangi Ototahi. You might have seen them as you came in with their table of resources. Um, they're here because Te Putahi understands that fertility education and associated work is a form of climate action. So thank you for joining us online and in the room. If you're here in Tūranga and want to chat, please hang around because our speakers, if they're able to, will be in the activity room to continue the conversation while we pack down in here. So, what do we think about the future of this garden city? We should plant, but not because it's going to save us from climate change. Like most of the effective climate actions we can take, trees and plants have multiple benefits, but as we've heard tonight, they are not a silver bullet. We need a wide range of measures from all sectors of society to address climate change. 
We need to shift our thinking, especially the way we think about ourselves in relation to the rest of the living world. That's what we need to be able to make a long-term commitment to reducing our emissions. So let's see trees perhaps as our non-human relations, as an investment in the future. The trees we plant today won't necessarily be for our direct benefit, but for the benefit of future generations. And as Larry taught us, to pay for our past sins, perhaps. To paraphrase that proverb many of you may know, a society grows great when old people plant trees in whose shade they shall never sit. And to remind you of the Naitahu Fokotoki that Joseph Hullen and others have used many times at previous events in this room, Motato, a mokauri, a muri akinei, for us and our children after us. Please also diary our next Christchurch conversation, which is on the 25th of October and is called Climate Action, What's the Hold Up, Christchurch? Or at least something like that. Um, we've asked seven or eight local experts to explain some of the key barriers to climate action and how they might be overcome, and their perspectives might surprise you. So do put 25th of October in your diary, follow us on the socials, join our newsletter from our website and keep the conversation going. Remember, the most important action you can take right now is to talk about climate change um, and to talk about climate action with other people. Oh, and don't forget to vote. Po Marie. You've been listening to Can Christchurch Plant Its Way Out of Climate Change? the second event in the Christchurch Conversation 2022 Climate Action Series. Many thanks to Te Putahi Centre for Architecture and City Making for sharing this recording. Podcasts of the whole series will be available on the Plains FM website. Just search Christchurch Conversations. Conversations.